Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. This episode features detailed and graphic accounts of female genital mutilation, including abuse of children. This content may not be appropriate for all audiences. All survivors' names have been changed for their safety and to protect anonymity. Listener discretion is advised. Yes, it can happen where you live. This is Method and Madness, Episode 50, FGM. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. It's a form of child abuse, posing the highest risk to girls ages 4 to 8. It's violence against both women and girls. It causes irreparable harm to their genitals and controls their future sexuality. It is linked to child marriage. Globally, it's known by different names. The World Health Organization defines it as all procedures involving partial or total removal of the external female genitalia or other injuries to the female genital organs, whether for cultural or other non-therapeutic reasons. So how prevalent is it? Are we talking a small group of people in a tiny portion of the world? To date, more than 200 million girls and women have undergone female genital mutilation worldwide. An estimated 68 million girls are at risk of being mutilated by the year 2030, all with the aim of inhibiting a woman's sexual feelings. The tools used to mutilate girls and women vary from blades to scissors, scalpels to razors, to pieces of glass. A girl is cut every 10 seconds. What you're about to hear are true stories from survivors. In March 2020, when schools closed after the COVID-19 outbreak, Roby was a happy-go-lucky 13-year-old. By March of 2021, she was married and pregnant. Roby, who is 14, is married and no longer in school because in the Abakuria culture, she is an adult thanks to the practice of female circumcision. Quote, My mother wanted me to undergo female genital mutilation. She said I was ready. I wouldn't have gotten married without the cut. End quote. She underwent the rite of passage in October 2020. By December, she had attracted a suitor. 
Roby lost her father, the family's breadwinner, to short illness in 2016. Getting cut to be married off seemed like a profitable option for her struggling mother. It is a tradition that the Somali people have been accustomed to. Maybe it has been used for centuries, but in today's modern society with scholars, teachers, and students, it is an offense to Somali girls everywhere, regardless of their religion, as far as I know. It has no place in our religion. In 2005, girls who were born were subjected to FGM, which is why today the education level of girls who come to school is less than that of boys. Girls become mothers, and the effect is still there. I went through FGM close to 35 years ago. The humiliation of stripping naked before strangers, not to mention the pain of the act, robbed me of my innocence and dignity. I am one of the people who have experienced FGM. It has affected me as it has affected many girls I see. I'm not married yet, but my periods are so horrific. Sometimes it causes me to lie down for a whole week. I have also seen girls being mutilated and their bodies being torn apart, causing many problems, even death. It is very difficult for me when I go to study. It causes me to take many pills, which is dangerous for my health. I was 15 years old, laying on a table, and I knew what was coming. I knew I was about to be mutilated. For me, my FGM was performed at a clinic by a healthcare professional, but it didn't make it any safer. It affects girls when they are married. The pain of unsealing and cutting flesh again and then forcing you to have sex with your husband is so painful. It can cause cysts and infections that healthcare can never tackle. Let's dive in. Social norms are taught as soon as you're able to lift a fork and you're told to chew with your mouth closed. While it's adorable for a baby to grab food off of someone else's plate, eventually we're taught that that's not okay. We hold the door for strangers walking in behind us, and we tip our servers and say hello when we pick up the phone. There are variations of social norms across cultures and societies, of course, And when it's ingrained in you during your formative years, you tend to not question it. Or if you do, you're taught that that's just how it's done. We rely on the adults in our lives to teach us and guide us through what is acceptable and to steer us away from what's deemed rude or embarrassing. Many of us are taught to fit in, to not make a splash. In some cultures, That thinking is dangerous and poses serious threats to both emotional and physical health and well-being. This particular social norm is recognized internationally as having no health benefits and is a violation of the human rights of girls and women and is almost always carried out on minors. It's about control, and it's dangerous So why are adults allowing it to continue? Why are they eagerly signing their daughters up for this and paying good money for it? 
The adults in our lives are supposed to keep us safe when we're children, protect us from harm, and teach us to stand up for ourselves. When we think of abuse, it's the secretive acts that happen behind closed doors, most commonly by an adult that the child knows, even lives with. The abuse we're talking about today takes planning, collaboration, deception. This abuse is paid for in cash. When Asha was eight years old and living in Somalia, she approached her mother, upset that her classmates had been teasing her. Asha didn't understand why and didn't comprehend the insults. Her mother told her, It was time. I'm going to take you on a trip. You're going to become a woman, she said. Asha was excited. She'd never been on a trip, and the cherry on top was that she was promised, afterward, she'd receive gifts. She and her mother boarded a bus and rode for over an hour until reaching an isolated area with just trees and a small hut. Asha walked closely behind her mother as they headed toward the hut where several women, whom the young girl had never seen before, were standing around, seemingly waiting for their arrival. Asha was told to go inside and get undressed. She was hesitant and puzzled, but she did as she was told. Standing inside without her clothes on, Asha watched as five of the women walked into the hut and instructed her to lie down on a mat on the floor. She did as she was told. The mat was itchy on her back, and she felt embarrassed and exposed. Two of the women knelt next to her and held down her arms. Two of the other women held down her legs, and a fifth woman sat down on her chest. The next thing Asha felt was hands in places she'd never been touched, followed by a cut. She screamed and tried to free herself, but she was pinned down. Suddenly, as quickly as it began, it seemed to be over. The women stood up and began to cheer. Asha opened her eyes, looked up, and saw all five of them dancing. One of them squatted down and whispered, Congratulations, you're a woman now. You're ready to be a wife. Asha was shocked by the pain as she looked down and saw blood, a lot of it. She was helped to her feet and led out of the hut and told to sit down on the ground under a tree. Her legs were then tied together and would remain that way for 14 days so scar tissue could be formed. She bled the rest of the day and all night. Urinating, she soon discovered, came with excruciating pain. She would hold it, even taking in fewer liquids to prevent the urge to urinate. When she returned home, there were celebrations. Her family was proud, but nobody comforted her or explained what had happened, and she was told not to ask questions or talk about it. It wasn't until adulthood that she learned why this had happened to her, that it was cultural, that it was done to prevent her from feeling sexual pleasure, that it was done to keep her from promiscuity, that her father had paid those five women to carry out the mutilation, and that it was done to keep her family 
from being humiliated. In some cultures in Somalia, when a man and woman are married, one tradition is carried out by the husband on their wedding night. He goes outside of the bride's family's hut and digs a hole in the dirt if his new wife is not cut. The bride is then rejected and sent back to her family. Asha wished she could look back on her childhood with fondness, memories of running around and just being a kid, but she never got that opportunity. All she remembers is the feeling of being cut, the blood, the confusion of not knowing why her mother brought her there, why this made her a woman. Essie knew something wasn't right about what she'd been subjected to at age 12 living in Sierra Leone. She was told not to tell anyone else or she'd die. There was always some threat of death that if you talked about it, you'd die, and if you died, you were a witch. There were rituals leading up to the day she was cut and rituals afterward. Some girls seemed excited about moving forward and becoming a woman but not Essie. In Kenya, Naya and three other girls stood outside while a group of women wiped white chalk on their bodies. After the girls were cut, they were told to squat naked over a stone while their family members watched. After growing up and getting married, the realization set in for Naya. She'd moved to the UK, and during her first pregnancy— her doctor initiated the conversation. She asked Naya if she'd undergone FGM. It was only after this that Naya started to confront the past. Nobody had ever talked to her about what had happened when she was a child. Nobody in her community ever explained it other than to say there was nothing wrong with it. Most women who leave the affected areas where FGM is practiced are only identified as victims if they become pregnant and visit an OBGYN. That means, for many, they are never given the help, resources, or support they need. While some women look back and forgive their families, Naya has not. She's angry at her parents. She's angry at the women who cut her. She now advocates for change, raising awareness and teaching youth about FGM, even those young people that aren't at risk. Education is what she's dedicated her life to. Ami grew up in an area of Guinea where she didn't have the opportunity to go to school. There were no schools in her village. As a child, she heard about the women who performed FGM, she and the other little girls in her village thought those women seemed scary, that they would put a curse on them. One day, Ami's mother told her she was going to go on a fun trip, receive gifts, and eat new foods that she'd never tried. At only 10 years old, she was looking forward to it. Ami's parents had planned for this, financially, and when the day came, she was taken to an isolated location and marched through a wooded area where she was told to pull down her pants and urinate. She did, and was immediately pushed to the ground. Two women sat on Ami's chest, while four other women held down her arms and her legs. Ami's grandmother appeared in front of her, 
a razor blade in hand, bent down and cut her. Ami screamed and bit down hard, tasting the flesh of one of the women who was sitting on her chest. There are currently at least 59 countries that have passed laws against female genital mutilation. While no religious scripts prescribe it, it is practiced by Muslims, Catholics, Protestants, Coptics, and animists, and is most prevalent in Africa, in particular in Northeastern, Eastern, and Western Africa. However, it also takes place in the Middle East, in Southeast Asia, in the United States, and also among immigrants in Europe. So why is it practiced, and why is it still practiced? Well, on the positive side, there are many organizations, nonprofits, globally, that are fighting to put an end to female genital mutilation. Many of those fights are led by survivors of FGM. It starts with education. But putting an end to it completely is complex. Many survivors do not think it's possible to end it. The reason it's done is also complex. FGM is deeply rooted in gender inequality. In some places, it's a rite of passage, seen as a prerequisite for marriage, that you aren't suitable to be a wife if you're intact. One of the core reasons for FGM is to keep girls and women from self-pleasure, which in Christianity, there's a lack of agreement on whether or not it's a sin. There's the school of thought that masturbation is not mentioned in the Bible and is therefore not a sin. Another school of thought says that masturbation is condemned through what is condoned in the Bible, that if you have urges, you should marry and essentially just have sex with your spouse. Some say FGM is deeply rooted in religious beliefs, while others will say it has nothing to do with religion. In some communities, FGM is such a huge part of identity and culture that if a family did stand up for their daughter and decided not to do it, they face being ostracized. The pressure to have their daughter suitable for marriage will lead them to give in. Hygienically or aesthetically, the external female genitalia is considered by many in these affected communities to be dirty and unsightly. Girls have been teased at school for having a third leg because they still had their clitoris. There are psychosexual reasons for this dangerous procedure, where it's believed that the reduction or elimination of the outer genital organs will also reduce sexual desire in girls or women, leading to them remaining a virgin until marriage and thus remaining faithful in marriage and providing more sexual pleasure for their male partner. The patriarchal misogyny, the against-women attitude, the women-are-less attitude, is all at the root of FGM. The different types of female genital mutilation known to be practiced are as follows. Type 1 is a clitoridectomy, the partial or total removal of the clitoris and or the prepuce. Type 2 is the partial or total removal of the clitoris and the labia minora, or the lips, without or with excision of the labia majora. 
Type 3 is infibulation, narrowing of the vaginal opening by cutting and removing the labia. Edges are then stitched together, leaving a tiny opening for urinating and menstrual fluid. Type 4 is for all other types of FGM, also known as an unclassified type. And this is defined as all other harmful procedures to the female genitalia for non-medical purposes. And this includes pricking, piercing or incising of the clitoris and or labia, stretching of the clitoris and or labia, cauterization by burning of the clitoris and surrounding tissue, scraping of tissue surrounding the vaginal orifice or cutting of the vagina, introduction of corrosive substances or herbs into the vagina to cause bleeding or for the purpose of tightening or narrowing it, and any other procedure that falls under the definition of female genital mutilation. Let's take a break. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I'm really thankful that mental health and self-care are taking more of a front seat these days. Therapy has helped me when I felt overwhelmed and needed to sort some things out. Maybe you're feeling more stressed lately or like you're struggling with work or personal relationships. However you're feeling, you deserve to be happy and to know that there is no shame in therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy. In under 48 hours, you could be communicating with a therapist by phone, live chat, or video if you're comfortable. Now is a good time to invest in yourself and see what online therapy is all about. And special offer to Method and Madness listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash method and madness. That's better H-E-L-P dot com slash method and madness. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. While female genital mutilation has mostly been performed on girls between the age of four and eight, recently it's increasingly performed on babies who are only a couple of days, weeks, or months old. The procedure, when done in rural areas, is conducted by traditional birth attendants, midwives, or circumcision operators. Special knives, pieces of glass, scissors, razor blades, or scalpels are the tools used, and the use of anesthetics and antiseptics is not common practice. In more urban areas, it's performed in hospitals by trained doctors, nurses, and midwives with anesthetics and antiseptics being used. There are serious physical and mental effects on health, often immediately after the procedure, including severe bleeding, infections, tetanus, paralysis of the bladder or blood poisoning, and even death. HIV and AIDS can also be transmitted via the use of dirty instruments. Now, along with the psychological trauma and the loss of sexual sensation, the victims often complain of long-term pain when urinating and during menstruation. Sitting or even walking can bruise and even reopen the scar tissue due to the constant rubbing of clothing. Other risks are cysts 
abscesses, bladder infections, and incontinence. Infertility is one possible long-term consequence, and sexual intercourse is often painful. Giving birth can increase bleeding and tissue cracks, and the birth may take longer than usual. Cesarean sections are common. In Sierra Leone, 86% of the women and girls have been initiated into FGM. There, it's known as Bondo, and women and girls are taught that this initiation will teach them to be better women. According to UNICEF, it has one of the highest rates of FGM in the world. A blog post on Bondo Society says, quote, Bondo is an authoritative group that is entirely comprised of women confederation that grooms teenage girls into adulthood, wedlock, and parenthood. They possess great authority in Sierra Leone and are indisputable even by political leaders, especially regarding the issue of FGM. They take part in the initiation ceremonies during which the young girls are circumcised and instructed about medicinal herbs, motherhood, and becoming perfect homemakers. Their power is so paramount that their decisions are held unanimously by the entire community The political leaders affirm their superiority, and for them to hold office, they offer to pay for the initiation ceremonies for a cohort of initiates. They boldly proclaim their supremacy. During the initiation ceremonies, girls are lined up to take part, all wearing white dresses and headscarves with their faces painted white. They are led into a bondo bush, This is a house where the procedure of FGM is done by an exciser, someone who is often paid by the girl's father. Adults, both men and women in the village, celebrate. In December of 2021, 21-year-old Masari Say, mother of two young boys, decided she wanted to join the Bondo Society. It's often something girls and women feel pressured to do, and in Masari's case, the pressure grew after the birth of her second child. Because many of the cultures practicing FGM are rooted in ancient rituals, they believe they're protecting their community. Masari's relatives said that the day before she joined the Bondo Society, she was in good health. On December 19th, she underwent the procedure and afterward, was complaining of a migraine and other pain. The next day, her body was found in a house known as a Bondo bush. She had died from acute hemorrhage shock, profuse bleeding, cutting of the clitoris, and a bitten tongue. The practitioner then took Masri's body and left it inside her family's home. Despite seeing some changes in the Bondo society in recent years, Activists are now pushing for major change in Sierra Leone. One question I kept coming back to during my research was regarding the business side of FGM. So much of the why is focused on cultural and religious beliefs. But learning that there are women and men getting paid to perform or facilitate FGM, I wanted to know more. Is there a way to completely get rid of FGM if there's always someone who will benefit financially, is that financial gain going to keep the businesses alive? Is it going to outweigh the right and wrong? 
And is it the driving force behind pushing these beliefs in today's cultures? Well, I found a little bit. This info comes from a Huffington Post article from 2016. In Kenya, the risk of FGM is declining, except for in the Kyria community. There are approximately 250,000 people living there, and 96% of women there undergo FGM. There's been a lot of resistance to change in this particular community, where parents pay 500 to 1,000 Kenyan shillings, equal to about 4 to 8 U.S. dollars. This is to have their daughters cut. The money is then distributed. Half of it goes to a male group of elders who then make decisions on cultural events and traditions like when cutting season begins. During this cutting season, each member of that group can receive up to 25,000 shillings, about 205 U.S. dollars. They are also gifted things like food and alcohol. Here is one excerpt from the article. Quote, Several community elders told Education Center for Advancement of Women they would end FGM if the government compensated them for the loss of income. Quote, the person who does the cut gets the money, but the elders are given a small amount each season, like 500 shillings, $5, says David Mwita, an elder from the Nyabasi clan, one of four Kyria clans, each with around 30 members. Quote, we have no problem with stopping cutting, but the government should give money to us old men each month. Other issues pop up. The elders start hiding the true extent of how much cutting occurs because they fear repercussions like jail time as the practice is seeing more and more legal ramifications. Egypt has stricter penalties for those performing FGM. Police in Kenya and Tanzania are preventing citizens from crossing borders to get the practice performed. So then it becomes more secretive and isolated. Of the 29 countries in Africa where FGM is traditionally practiced, 26 have laws prohibiting FGM. Among these, penalties range from monetary fines to a minimum of three months to life in prison, but many countries struggle to enforce these penalties. On the one hand, when you dig deep into the origins of FGM, some think it began in ancient Europe and then spread to East Africa, it's understandable to assume people didn't know better. And then the tradition continued without understanding the dangers and long-term effects. And then tradition begets tradition. But at some point I have to wonder if in some of these affected areas, it's willful ignorance by the practitioners themselves the practice of FGM is decreasing in many areas globally, thanks to community meetings, discussions to educate the elders, the parents, and the children on the dangers of FGM. There are girls and teens that think it's a natural practice, and it's not until advocates educate them that they realize the consequences. In turn, those girls and teens are educating their communities and becoming advocates even enforcing accountability if anyone in the community is caught trying to perform FGM. So the education is working. The advocacy is working. Former circumcisers are becoming advocates. Religious leaders are sitting down and listening and realizing how wrong it is. 
They are forbidding it from occurring in their communities. There is tangible change. Women who give birth to daughters, well, those daughters in some communities are followed up with years later to make sure that they're in school and not being forced into marriage. In some cases, having laws and punishments around FGM is effective. But in order to completely rid the world of the practice, there has to be an end to the financial gain, or there will always be someone offering up circumcision in secret. There will always be a driving force to keep the families rooted in that tradition. Here in the U.S., 513,000 girls and women are at or have been at risk of FGM, but what does that data mean? The available statistics about FGM here in the U.S. are very broad, and after digging deeper, it's safe to say there's a reluctance, deliberately or not, in discussing the issue of FGM in America. In 1996, the United States passed a federal law banning FGM, but that doesn't mean it's not practiced here. U.S. Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid successfully sponsored the first U.S. legislation against female genital mutilation and said, quote, if this isn't an issue of human rights, there isn't an issue in the world that is human rights. If a report came out that 200 million boys had had a testicle removed, would the world stay silent? In 2017, a Michigan doctor was charged with performing FGM on nine minors ages six to eight, some of which crossed state lines to have the procedure done. Dr. Jumana Nagarwala said she did nothing wrong. She was merely performing a religious custom. Despite taking an oath, she would never harm a patient. It was groundbreaking, the first time in the U.S. that someone was going to have their day in court due to practicing FGM. Prosecutors said she'd been practicing FGM for 12 years. Also charged was Dr. Fakhrudin Attar, who allowed Dr. Nagarwala to use his medical clinic in Livonia, Michigan. Six others were also charged. Dr. Attar's wife, Farida Attar, and Tahera Shafiq, who assisted the doctor in the procedures, along with four women who were mothers of four of the victims. Four of the victims were residents of Michigan, three were residents of Illinois, and two were residents of Minnesota. Let's take a look at the charges. Count one charges all of the defendants with conspiracy to commit FGM. Counts two through six charges all of the defendants with committing FGM and with aiding and abetting each other in doing so in violation of the FGM statute. According to the United States Code, Whoever knowingly circumcises, excises, or infibulates the whole or any part of the labia majora or labia minora or clitoris of another person who has not attained the age of 18 years shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than five years or both. But in 2018, U.S. District Judge Bernard Friedman declared that the law banning FGM was unconstitutional and should be handled at the state level. Before the case could even reach trial, all charges against all eight defendants were dropped. There are currently 10 U.S. states 
that don't even have laws banning this practice. I wonder if we'll see a day where circumcision performed on male infants is banned as well. Liz, a white woman, grew up in the United States in a very strict Christian home. She attended church every week and was taught that God made women to be submissive to men. At age five, like many other little girls, she was lied to, told she was going on an exciting trip and would get a lot of presents. But instead, she was blindfolded, held down, and cut before having her legs tied together. She was told never to speak of what happened. She endured excruciating periods, urinary tract infections, and sex was always painful. She could not give birth naturally. Liz now advocates for change in the U.S. In 1947, Alice, a three-year-old girl living in the Midwest of the United States, was brought to a church clinic by her mother. There, Alice's clitoris was removed because her mother thought she'd been touching herself. As a teenager, she went to a doctor because of a tugging sensation she felt from her scar tissue, but it was the same doctor that had cut Alice, and they provided her with literature titled The Sin of Self-Pleasuring. When Alice gave birth to her first child, her doctor was compassionate and shocked by what had happened to her as a young child. For her next pregnancy, she had a different doctor, and that experience was traumatizing. One surgeon even suggested removing one of Alice's nipples to create a clitoris. It wasn't until menopause that the scar finally separated 50 years after she was cut. Like many other survivors of FGM, Alice went on to work with other women who've experienced FGM, and she helps them initiate the conversation with their obstetricians on how to open their scars. In times of disaster or really heavy, violent news stories, a quote by Mr. Rogers is often remembered and shared. When I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, Look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. It's a really beautiful thing that he told his audience, his audience of mostly preschool-age children. I pause when considering using that quote in serious situations among adults. Mr. Rogers was a wonderful man who was able to make small children feel better about the things they may catch on TV, from the tail end of the civil rights movement to the Cold War, to the AIDS epidemic, things that children couldn't fully grasp but were smart enough to know that something bad was going on. And now with 24-hour news and social media, that advice is even more valuable, but again, for small children. I fear we may find too much comfort in that notion as adults or rely on helpers rather than stepping up and being an advocate. Where are the helpers when child abuse is carried out in mass in communities? When behind the abuse is the passing of money? There are plenty of helpers trying to put a stop to this abuse, but not enough to be truly comforting. It has happened, it is happening, and it will continue to happen. There is a disparity between comforting a child about the horrors of the world and trying to comfort ourselves, our adult selves, into a sense of security. In other words, don't just look for the helpers. Be one. Here are some calls to action. 
You can help by promoting both criminal and civil liability for the perpetrators of this form of child abuse. What's needed are institutional stakeholders, from medical professionals to law enforcement to be trained to identify and respond to FGM, and for communities to be empowered to combat the practice. In the U.S., strong legislation contributes to eradicating FGM. You can become an advocate, take training on how to educate on the dangers of FGM, spread awareness, or make donations. Donations go toward educating the affected communities, creating legislation, and helping girls and women who have experienced FGM seek out reconstructive surgery. Restorative surgery is the restoration of the clitoris and labia. The surgery eliminates the daily pain and discomfort caused by FGM. It removes any existing abscesses. It gives relief to the survivor after a lifetime of pain. There are countless organizations worldwide, from Los Angeles to Kenya to New Zealand, activists that are working to put an end to FGM and have literally saved tons of lives. I'll link some of them in the show notes, and there's also a lot listed on the Method and Madness website under the details for this episode. But one thing that all advocates seem to agree on is the need for zero tolerance of FGM, which means collective abandonment. A whole community needs to agree to abandon the practice. That starts with educating those communities on the health and human rights aspects of FGM. Thank you to these amazing friends of the podcast who lent their voices for this episode. Check out and subscribe to their podcasts. Kristen from Murder, She Told, Courtney and Amanda from A Nefarious Nightmare, Lainey from True Crime Cases with Lainey, Whitney from Colts, Crimes, and Cabernet, and Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast, so if you'd like to show your support, you can leave a five-star rating on Spotify or a five-star review on Apple Podcast or on Podchaser. It makes the show more visible for new listeners. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook as well. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me at MethodAndMadnessPod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. It is edited by Moenspo. Take care of yourself. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741. Thank you.